tonight's scripture reading is from Philippians 1, verses 1 through 11. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi with the overseers and deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And I am sure of this that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. It is right for me to feel this way about you all, because I hold you in my heart, for you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment, so that you may approve what is excellent and be so pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. This is the word of the Lord. Garrison Keeler once described receiving a letter from a friend like this. Such a sweet gift, a piece of handmade writing in an envelope that is not a bill. Sitting in our friend's path when she trudges home from a long day spent with wahoos and savages, a day our words will help repair. They don't need to be immortal, just sincere. She can read them twice and again tomorrow. You're someone I care about, Corinne, and I think of you often. And every time I do, you make me smile. We don't write a lot of letters these days. We, we may be the last generation that has a, a post office. <laughs> I don't know. But in the ancient world, uh, letter writing was a practiced art. And in school, if you were a Roman citizen, you, you took a course in rhetoric and you learned different forms of of letters. One of them was the letter of friendship. Paul, towards the end of his life, when he's in prison in Rome, writes that kind of a letter to the church in Philippians. We read about the founding of this church in Acts 16. We won't read that to you tonight, but if we could put the slide up there, uh, Bob, we'll just give you a little background there. Philippi was a Roman colony in Macedonia, which is in modern-day Greece. And Paul, Silas, and Timothy, when they were on their second missionary journey, had a strategy, strategy, and it was to go the other way. They wanted to go into the east. They wanted to bring the gospel into Turkey. And as they were going there, we read an interesting passage where Luke describes what happened. And they went through the region of Phrygia and Galatia, having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. I've always wondered about that, that the Holy Spirit would say, don't preach the gospel here. Hmm. But the Spirit of Jesus, oh, and then when they came up to Mysia, they attempted to go to Bithynia, and these are all uh, cities in Turkey. Yeah, but the Spirit of Jesus did not allow them. Then a vision appeared to Paul in the middle of the night. A man of Macedonia was standing there, urging him and saying, Come over to Macedonia and help us. 
And when Paul had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go to Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. So the apostles change their plans, and they decide that instead of heading east, they will head west. They stop at Philippi, which was a major gateway city into Europe. And the first person they meet is a businesswoman who uh, appears to either be Jewish or a Jewish convert. Her name is Lydia. She believes Paul casts out a spirit from a slave girl, which messes up the economics of the city's slave trade. They're thrown into jail. Paul and Silas singing hymns at midnight. An earthquake occurs. The door is open. Paul leads the Philippian jailer to the Lord. And right after this, they all gather at Lydia's house and the church of Philippi is born. So note to self, uh, sometimes a broken play, sometimes a strategy that fails, actually opens up a wonderful opportunity for the gospel. Well, ten years go by. The Philippians, although not wealthy, uh, support Paul and his missionary work. And, and he writes this to thank them, but it's much more than that. Uh, this is, is probably Paul's most tender letter to friends. And he introduces his letter in the first 11 verses uh, and in doing so, he, he models several ways to care for a friend. And he begins by reminding them who they are. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi, with the overseers and deacons, grace to you, peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. He says, you're saints. The word means holy. It means to be set apart. What sets the Christian apart? We are saints in Christ Jesus. The first thing he reminds him, as he so often does, is let me remind you of the thing that is most true about you, my friend. You are a saint in Christ Jesus. That's a good thing for a friend to remind you of. I have a friend who's particularly good at this. And when I'm struggling with something or the, my flesh is kind of raining or I've got something twisted or distorted and I become frustrated because I can't change it, he's good to say, yes, but that's not the core of who you are. The core of who you are is holy. The core of who you are wants God. The core of who you are wants the things of God. That's what friends do. They remind us of who we are. And Paul actually has an interesting way of, of addressing the leaders of the church in Philippi. He calls them overseers and deacons. Uh, the church, as at this point all the churches in the New Testament, is not led by one man. It's led by a team of leaders. And it's interesting, he doesn't say, I'm writing to the leaders who are over the church at Philippi. He says, I'm writing to the Christians at Philippi within whom are leaders. <laughs> That's a nice difference. Uh, we need to remember that as, as leaders. Grace to you, he says. 
That was a, a Greek meaning that he imports with wonderful, rich theology. He, even in his second verse, he can't stop but reminding them, Hey guys, I, I, I know there's a lot going on in the Roman Empire right now. Uh, I, I'm in a jail uh, because I, I've, I've kind of crossed paths with that. I know there's a lot going on in your church right now. Let, let me just, uh, just, just kind of start off by reminding you, grace to you. You are loved. God accepts you. God forgives you because of the work of Christ on the cross. Grace to you. Let's just start there. Grace to you. And peace to you. That was a Jewish greeting that he wove in there. He says, may you who are saints in Christ Jesus, may you who know the grace of Christ Jesus, have the peace of Christ Jesus. An inner stillness, a a solid core that comes from being in right relationship with God and his people. After reminding them who they are, he gives thanks for them. And and before we move on, let 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 me just encourage us to follow the apostles' example in our relationships. Many times in a conversation, I'll just not know what to say. And I think that's okay. And I also know how damaging it can be for somebody to just preach at you, to throw Bible verses at you, to not listen well. I get that. But as Christians, one of the privileges we have in our friendships is to remind one another of the great Hope of our faith, the great truths of our faith. You are a saint. You live under grace. You live out of God's peace. Those are good things to remind each other. Well, after reminding them who they are, Paul gives thanks for them. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine, for you are all making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. He's thankful for a couple of things. He says he's thankful for their partnership in the gospel. And this is a word that will come up uh, I think 18 times in the book. It's the Greek word koinonia. And it means fellowship. And it's more than just thanks for writing a check for these years. It's, he's talking about a kind of unity that Christians can have in Christ as they share in the gospel work together. And he says, here I am at the end of my life, And as I was praying this morning, I was just reminded how thankful I am about the fellowship we've enjoyed all these years. Philippians, you've you've never let me go. You've never left me. And then he'll talk about that a little bit later. He says in verse 7, You're all partakers with me of grace, both of my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. He says, you are 
You are with me. We've drunk from the reservoir of grace together. We have suffered together. Even now when I'm in prison, even now when I'm before the magistrate, there's a sense in which I feel your support. We're together. And then he describes that that relationship in the most intimate terms. He says, verse 7, It's right for me to feel this way about you. I hold you in my heart. Verse 8, How I yearn for you with all the affection of Christ Jesus. These are tender, intimate, vulnerable words. They're, They're risky words for a leader to say to his people. They're risky words to admit how much you feel for someone else. How much you need someone else. It's a a rich, rich communion that he's so thankful about. It It brings him to great joy. You know, I I was reading a a book on friendship recently. It was called Spiritual Friendship. And and the author has a chapter on... uh, are we losing friendship? Do we not know how to be friends uh, like other generations may have known? And I don't know. I'm certain that friending someone on Facebook is not the same thing as what Paul's talking about here. If I'm honest, as I sat in this text this week, I, I, I was aware that that the level of depth in his friendship with others is something I strain for and rarely taste. Something I think I fail at. You know, it struck me too that Paul is, I don't know if he ever married, uh, perhaps he did, but the Paul we meet in the Gospels uh, rather than in the epistles and in the book of Acts, is pretty much always single. He lives his life as a single man. And, and somehow he seems to find great joy and contentment in that singleness because of this koinonia that he has with other Christians, like the Philippians. He, he's managed to have those God-given needs for, for relationship met in relationship with spiritual friends. And one of the things that strikes me as I think about this, you know, 50% of Americans today are are single. Uh, The the trend is moving more that way. And and I wonder sometimes how good a job churches and, and we as a church do at, at creating a culture where that kind of intimacy can be found. Particularly for the half of our church that's single. It it seems like a lot of times our answer is, well, I'll pray that you'll marry. And that's a good thing. Marriage is a good thing. But it's something I've been thinking a lot about for our church. And uh, particularly, I have a friend who's, uh, or I was reading a book about a young man who is struggling with uh, his sexuality and the choices that he wants to make in light of that. And 
And he's decided that as a great Christian, he wants to live a celibate life. Uh, but he's really struggled with that. He's wondered if he's condemned himself to uh, a lifetime of eating at a table for one. And so this book is about his wrestling with that, and essentially it's a cry to the church, and what he's asking is, if I, if, if I choose not to marry, will you be my family? And honestly, you know, if, 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 if you say to a, a, a gay Christian, hey, I think, I think you ought to be celibate, I think that's God's will for you, it seems to me that, that, that you ought to follow up with a, with a pretty strong family. That you would offer something that is rich and meaningful and whole and deep. The second thing that Paul says that he's thankful for is that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ Jesus. That's got to be one of the greatest verses in Philippians. He's saying, you know, I'm just so thankful for for you. And even more, I'm, I'm so thankful for God's work in you. One of the things that strikes me about this introduction in this whole letter is how God-centered it is. He and Timothy are servants of Christ Jesus. The Philippians are saints in Christ Jesus. Grace and peace come to the believer from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. He thanks his God when he prays for them. He looks forward to the day of Jesus Christ. God is his witness. He yearns with them with the affection of Jesus Christ. He wants them prepared for the day of Christ. He wants them filled with the righteousness of Christ. All this is for the glory and praise of God. This is uh, the first 11 verses. And that's one of the marks of Christian friendship, is, is that it goes beyond good listening, good caring, being there. Those are all important things. But, but one of the marks of Christian friendship is it's so god centered and it's horizontal and vertical and one of the things that transpires in it is that we move both to God and to each other and we constantly are reminding one another of God's work in our lives that's one of the things that's distinctly Christian now another friend I have who I've been talking about all these relational things with disagrees with me about what the Bible teaches on celibacy and we're having some marvelous conversations on this. And it's been really challenging for both of us. But one of the things that's come out of it is both of us are experiencing God doing a work in each of us. That's what a Christian friendship is. And Paul's thankful for that. Uh, The author Paul Waddell put it like this. He says, Christians think differently about friendship because their understanding of friendship is rooted not in rosy accounts of human perfectibility, but in a God who remains ever faithful to us and who never, no matter how bad our failings, writes us out of the story of divine love. 
a fourth century Christian writer, wrote to a friend, For our friendship is not a secular friendship, but rather that spiritual kind which is produced by God as its source and is joined in a brotherhood of souls. I like that. A Christian friendship is produced by God as its source. It's nourished by a shared hope in God. Alred of Raveau wrote a classic book on spiritual friendship in the 12th century, and he wrote a friend, the right kind of friendship between us should begin in Christ, be maintained according to Christ, and have its end and value referred to in Christ. So Paul gives thanks for his partnership with him in the gospel. He gives thanks for what God is doing in their life. And and I think that's a wonderful model for the way we relate to our friends. Is to remind them of what you see God doing in their life. Now Paul ends his introduction by praying for his friends. And it's one of those classic Paul prayers. It's a mouthful. It is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and discernment so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ filled with the righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. All one line in the Greek. What's he praying for? He's praying that they grow in love for each other. This is a church that has some tension in it. Very diverse church. Lydia was from Asia. The slave girl was was Greek. The centurion was Roman. Three ethnicities in one church. They were from three different social hierarchies. Probably spoke three natural languages. Three different religious backgrounds. And that's their church planning core. And so 10 years later, if we read between the lines, Paul is saying things like agree with each other and have the same mind with each other. He singles out two two leaders in particular to, to find agreement. So there's some tension in this church, partially because of their diversity. And so he prays for their love to grow. That's a good thing to pray for a friend. That's not a throwaway line. (laughs) I'll pray for you. I get the sense that when Paul says he's praying for them, you know, he's in a jail, he probably really was praying for them, and he believes that God's love and power is somehow released in and through them through his prayers, and that somehow he's connected with them through his prayers, and that somehow their lives are energized and moved towards God through his prayers. And he reminds them of that. And I think that's what we should hear when David Leach texts me Sunday afternoon at 2 and says, I want you to know... I'm in a prayer meeting and I'm praying for you right now. That encourages me. That's not, you know, hashtag sup. You know, this this is like something real. 
that, that happens when we pray for each other. Well, then he goes on to pray that they'll grow in knowledge. Usually Paul means the knowledge of God. If, if you don't know what to pray for your, your friend, your roommate, your, your pastor, your, your child, pray this. Pray that they'll grow in love, especially with people who are different than them, which was this church. And pray that they'll grow in the knowledge of God. That's always a good prayer. And have all discernment so that you may approve what is excellent and be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Christ to the glory and praise of God. He he loves to pile these things on here, and it's like a big snowball. You start with love, you move into a deeper knowledge of God that leads to a right discernment of the ways of God, that leads to a pure and blameless life, that leads to excellent living, that leads to the fruit of righteousness, that leads to God being glorified. It's a wonderful prayer. It's a wonderful prayer. I bet you God puts your friends on your heart more than you know. I bet you it happened today. You might not have noticed it. You might might have just been a thought. I'd encourage you to pay attention to that more. That when uh, Ron Wallard comes to my mind, even though he's in California, although he's here tonight, uh, pray for him. I don't know how to pray for him. I don't know what he's going through. Pray that he'll grow in love and the knowledge of God that will lead him to the discernment, will cause him to make good choices, that will lead him to live a pure and blameless life, and will give praise and glory to God. You can't go wrong with that. You can't go wrong with that. At the end of his life, Paul writes his friend a letter. And one thing you might think about is, as we end here is, will you have anybody to write at the end of your life? Are your relationships moving to that depth and intimacy and closeness, even though they're messed up and goofed up and painful and yucky, and I get all that, but is the trajectory of your life moving to a point that when you're at the end of your life and you're in the prison of a hospital room and you're wondering whether or not you're going to watch another game show on TV or you're going to write somebody, will you have anybody to write? And will you have anything to say? I'll end with this. C.S. Lewis, the, the great writer from the first half of the 20th century, his oldest and his possibly best friend with Arthur Greaves. They met uh, as children because they both loved to read Norse mythology. They went on different paths, but they started writing each other. If I read this right today, they started writing each other in 33 and they ended in 63. And there's a book. 592 pages of all their letters. And I was skimming through some of it today, because Lewis, if you read Mere Christianity or most of his works, is not a real gusher. <laughs> you know, he's kind of British and uh, dour. And, uh, and I kept running into these phrases. One of them, do try to write me a long letter soon. 
You are constantly in my mind, even when I don't write. And to lose touch with you would be like losing a limb. Got a letter like that recently? Well, in what would turn out to be the final year of his life, Lewis and Greaves were planning a vacation. His wife had died. Greaves never married. And they were going to go to Ireland. And then Lewis had a heart attack, and they never were able to take the trip. He was able to write one last letter to his friend. In the beginning, he said, It looks as if you and I shall never meet again in this life. This often saddens me very much. And then he ended the letter, Oh, Arthur, never to see you again. Write a friend this week. Remind them who they are. Give thanks for them. And tell them that you're praying.